You're listening to My Matters, the Behavioral Health Podcast. Uh, Consort Health is hosting this podcast to bring you conversations and analysis around the biggest topics in behavioral health. Welcome to this episode of Mind Matters. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Mina Mirholm, the Chief Medical Officer for Consult Health. And today I am pleased, honored, and excited to, to bring on uh, Dr. George Nasra. Uh, Dr. Nasra is Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at University of Rochester Medical Center. He also serves as the Chief of the Division of Collaborative Care and Wellness and is the Medical Director of Behavioral Health Partners. All right. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today, Dr. Nasra. really appreciate your time. So um, I wanted to jump in with, the, the, you know, you're someone who's dedicated your career to this kind of work, and I, I would love to learn more, I think, so with, with the audience, just a bit about your passion for behavioral health, not just sort of in general, but even specifically taking it outside of the little silos that we put them into, you know, these specialty clinics. Can you give us a sense of just why this has been a passion for you and, a, you know, a bit about your story? Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Mina. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and talk about this uh, topic of uh, mental health, behavioral health, and integrated care, which really has been a passion, as you say, uh, my whole career. Um, I think there are many reasons why uh, physicians, uh, uh, young graduates, if you want, go into this field of psychiatry. For me personally, it was uh, specifically that uh, um, interest to delve into the interface between general medicine and psychiatry. I've always enjoyed uh, working with uh, 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 general medical colleagues, uh, whether it's in hospitals and outpatient clinics, and bring in the behavioral health, the mental health, the substance use um, component to, to the work uh, that they do. And that's been uh, from my years of medical school and then residency, that's always been a passion of mine. And also because it's an area that is under um, funded, understudied, and underrepresented. So that adds, um, in my, in my um, mind, it adds more value to the work uh, that we do as behavioral health uh, specialists. Totally see that. Yeah, and I can... You know, you would think it would be something that would be somewhat intuitive that, you know, here you have this whole person, there's a there's a physical component of them and, and the head remains yeah. attached to the rest of the body, no matter what happens. But uh, but it sounds like, you know, throughout your career, you've seen that it's underfunded, understudied, and there's an opportunity there for this to be to be different. Can you speak a little bit to the opportunity as to, yeah. you know, how we've been able to, to see the missing link here a little bit, where, where the problem is sort of been? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, it's um, it's a question that I will try to answer, but there is more more to it uh, as well. Um, I believe that uh, when we talk about integrated care, hmm. really we should be talking about reintegrated care. And hmm. the reason I'm saying this is because you can imagine a time when uh, the medical profession was integrated. Right. If you think of the country doctor, uh, that person was doing it all, right? They, mm -hmm. they, that person was a, a medical provider, a surgeon, a mental health provider, and even a pharmacist maybe. Right. Um, so at that time, care was integrated. The problem uh, in a way, I'm saying the problem, but what happened is uh, that uh, medical science has evolved mm -hmm. to the point where one person couldn't do it all anymore. So we had to specialize. 
into different uh, fields in medicine. What happened also is that psychiatry at that time of specialization, if you want, moved away from the general medical field for a number of reasons that maybe we don't have time to explore uh, for the purpose of, of this podcast, but psychiatry moved away in a number of ways, moved away as a culture, moved away as a way that's uh, uh, how it's funded, how we um, organize our day to see patients differently. Our medical colleagues don't understand why we have to spend 45 to 50 minutes with patients and they spend 15 minutes. Like, what are you doing all the, you know, 50 minutes with one person in your office? There's a different culture, but mm. importantly also, there's a different way that we get paid for our work. Mm. So we have created silos. One silo is the general medical care and another silo is psychiatric care. So now that we talk about integrated care, bringing those two silos together, we are finding a lot of obstacles uh, mm. to doing that. And that um, becomes an issue because our patients are not siloed in their concerns. Uh, comorbidity is significant. Yeah, we know that 10 to 30% of people with heart disease have psychiatric concerns. We know that the same is true for people with diabetes, even more for patients with cancer or any kind of chronic condition. So patients come to us with both problems and our system of care fragments those mm-hmm. two and outsources psychiatric care to, to a, a different provider who's paid differently, a different budget, and that creates a problem in access for our patients who have serious medical and serious psychiatric concerns. You know, I, I love the way that you're framing this because sometimes when we think about collaborative care, integrated care, it's sort of presented as this new idea. Hey, the research is a couple of decades old, which is new, I guess, in the medical world. It's like, oh, it's kind of innovative. It's cool. But, but really the way that you're framing this, which is a reality, is that this is just us coming home. This is what it means to to be one healthcare system or healthcare or an, an individual getting overall healthcare, not just, you know, I'm not gonna ship my pancreas out when I need to get something for my diabetes. I, I'm just a person and I go to my provider, I go to wherever I am. And, you know, interestingly, I'd say, I was on a call earlier today with one doc uh, who's practicing in a more rural place where he is very much the same model that you're describing. He's like, I get it all. I get from, I have to deliver a baby and I got to, you know, care for bipolar disorder. So I love that framing. And, and, and I wanted to transition a little bit from the system overall and sort of your individual passion. I really want to hear a bit more too about Rochester in particular, how, how you've sort of seen this there and a bit of the Rochester story, if you will, in terms of behavioral health and how that's taking shape there. Yes, thank you. So the Rochester story is an interesting one, right? Uh, um, Rochester, um, as a university, as a medical school, um, uh, was was created after uh, the Flexner report, right? Came out, came about, and uh, if um, um, if uh, 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 to say one thing about the Flexner report, that's that came out um, and solidified the biomedical model mm. of care. Um, and uh, that's what the tradition of the Rochester 
medical school is about. And then interestingly enough, in the 40s, um, when the psychiatric department um, was created under uh, John Romano and George Engel, those two leaders in the field and uh, innovators in the field really brought back the tradition of whole person care, maybe as a reaction to this biomedical model that was being pushed you know, during that period of time. The whole field of medicine was excited about all the medical research and innovation that was happening. And the field was very much um, moving in the direction of the medical model or biomedical model. And uh, George Engel, who was an internist, interestingly, uh, but also had a psychoanalytic background, was uh, applying his psychoanalytic theories to the medical field. And he wrote his seminal um, uh, publication in 1977 and basically coined the term biopsychosocial model and the rest is history, right? So our department of psychiatry follows in the footsteps of George Engel and the biopsychosocial model, which really brings back the psychological and the social aspects of medical care to the bedside and to the patient and to our conceptualization of disease and illness, because not everything is a medical model um, and 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 um, and when we talk about integrated care, mm. especially when we talk about the behavioral health component of integrated care, that's what we're talking about. Whole person care is the biopsychosocial model, and here in Rochester, we live and breathe that in our culture, in our tradition, in our everyday language, talking to each other, and we uh, live and breathe it also in the services that we provide. So. One thing I want to say is that um, when we, when I came to uh, Rochester um, almost 30 years ago, um, I worked at a, um, a private hospital in the area, and then I joined the university in 2014, specifically to develop this uh, new division in the department that we uh, called and continue really to uh, uh, grow this division of collaborative care and wellness. Mm. In this division, we try to uh, make a home to all those integrated care uh, programs. Uh, so our program uh, in collaboration with oncology, our program in collaboration with neurology, we have several primary care clinics where we provide integrated care to them, our transplant service, our inpatient consult service. We have a new uh, initiative next uh, in July that we're starting with our dermatology colleagues, and we are going to have a psychiatrist in dermatology uh, embedded in their uh, clinic. So those are things that we live and breathe. And why is that important? Because without this push, without actually... Um, intentionally making this happen, the reality of the situation is that most places in the US, most outpatient uh, clinics, uh, psychiatric clinics employ about 95% of specialty uh, providers, right? So psychiatrists, social workers, mental health professionals, um, 
work in specialty clinics. Mm -hmm. And then our primary care colleagues, where most of the um, need is, we say that 80% of people with behavioral health concerns are getting their care through their primary care practice, right? right? Um, and if you understand that uh, um, statistic, also understand that uh, 60 to 70% of those are not getting any treatment at all. Mm. And then even those who are getting some treatment, maybe 10 to 20% of them are getting what we consider evidence-based medicine. That's the, that's the treatment that we hope is going to improve their condition. So that's the reality of the situation. Uh, the patient needs care in primary care practices and specialists are mostly practicing in specialty care clinics. So maybe you wanna call this a supply and demand mismatch. Right, mm -hmm. you have the supply in primary care that is not met by um, uh, you have the demand on the primary care side, I should say, that is not met by the supply of professionals who are working in uh, specialty clinics. So why is that? Why why is that happening? Um, again, we don't have too much time to to delve into that, but uh, a big reason why that's happening is that the incentive, the financial incentives. Mm -hmm does do not allow uh, professionals from the mental health side to go and practice in an integrated way, uh, in an embedded way with their primary care colleagues. And we'll talk a little bit more about the collaborative care model and the wisdom of that model also is that it created a way for um, the services provided in the medical uh, setting to be reimbursed and to be financially sustainable. I love the way that you're framing this because as, as much as this can be, as you mentioned, personified in someone, maybe who's an internist with psychoanalytic training. And I feel like on, on some level, physicians and even healthcare executives sort of get this. It's like, oh, of course, it's whole person of care. Of course, there is a silo. Of course, there's a mismatch, right? Like if you spend any time in a hospital, you spend any time around a patient panel, you can see this. This is not lining up where all of the specialty clinics are employing the vast majority of folks and the need still remains in primary care and we're somehow not crossing that bridge. And I would imagine like you're describing this in Rochester and you all are very intentional culturally around fighting upstream, right, against this sort of carve out almost, if you will. I imagine this is also something that happens in other healthcare systems where other systems are seeing that, hey, we're seeing this mismatch. We're seeing that we'd like to be able to tackle this and we put an honest effort into tackling it one way or another, but then somehow things don't work out exactly the way that they, they would like to. And, and they feel like, well, could we do this alone or could we partner? Could you speak a bit about if I'm a healthcare person and I am in charge of an entire health system, why would I not just do this by myself? Why would I just, why would I even consider partnering with somebody else you know, couldn't I figure this out? This seems intuitive enough. Three CPT codes and collaborative care. How hard can it be? Yes, yes, exactly. That's that's so true, and we we have faced that here in Rochester. It's not easy. It's mm -hmm. not easy to change the way that we operate on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Um, I would say all providers on the primary care side are busy and overwhelmed 
every day. I mean, if we know anything about primary care, we know that uh, there's so much being put on uh, primary care practices, uh, panel size, uh, workload, uh, nursing staff is overloaded, mm. um, and the physicians and the practitioners are overloaded. So asking that practice to change their workflow, to add, it may seem easy mm. to add another um, person on the team to provide behavioral health services. It may seem easy because the need is there, because you can speak to any primary care provider and they will tell you we need mm. a behavioral health person in our practice. But then, uh, you know, the old adage that everyone wants change, but no one wants to change. Um, the change is easy to sell, but then implementing change becomes difficult. Do you have an office for that person? Uh, does your medical record allow for um, behavioral health notes to be created, templates to be created? Do you know how to bill? Does your billing team know how to bill for those services? Um, is the person that you're hiring someone who has uh, the ability to bill independently, or uh, are they going to be billing in a different way? How are they going to be uh, billing? Are you going to create a new uh, meeting to provide supervision for these individuals? And where is that time coming from? All those become questions and potentially obstacles to implementation to the point where when we have conversations with primary care practices around collaborative care models, in general, the initial phase of the conversation is very positive. In fact, people get excited about the model. And as we start talking about implementation, then there is a realization that it's more difficult than we expected. And a lot of people drop out of that conversation. Mm. Why, why partner with other, with other people? Um, there are several reasons why that is uh, important, or at least why we felt here in Rochester that there's a value add to this partnership. Uh, I will tell you, we were able to implement the collaborative care model in several of our primary care practices, and we continue to, to do that. Hmm. But the reality is that our health system, just like many others around the country, is growing. So we are adding significant number of practices all the time. Mm. Uh, we at this point in Rochester have about 100 primary care practices between those that are uh, employed and those that are affiliated with our accountable care organization. Mm. Uh, those uh, practices are asking for support and for us to help them with their behavioral health uh, needs. Uh, if we uh, implement the collaborative care model by hiring a therapist, you know, for each one of those practices, it becomes very quickly, it becomes impossible for us to really meet the need mm. uh, at scale. So the partnership with an outside organization here in Rochester, we decided to partner with uh, Concert Health around the collaborative care model. And that partnership brings uh, uh, two um, uh, solutions to the table. One is the easier way to implement the model by taking away the pain of hiring um, a therapist for the practice, 
hiring a psychiatrist for this uh, consultation, and also the expertise around implementation mm. uh, of the model itself. But in my mind, even more important than that, it provides that implementation at scale possibility. Mm. So now we can partner with a vendor who is going to help us provide this model of care, not to one or two or five practices, but potentially and over a period of time to all hundred practices that are affiliated with our, with our system. I love that. And that's really honing in, I think, on, on a key, especially if there's, there are more and more large healthcare systems around the country that are, that are facing this challenge, right? And they're seeing, and you're totally right, being able to, hiring is a huge challenge, the implementation is a huge challenge. And I was on a call recently with, with a major health system and they were saying, listen, we do excellent clinical work. We're actually doing it in a way that is that is that we're very proud of. We're just not getting paid, <laughs> not making any money. So the to be able to merge those two things, the scalability of something that can go from two clinics to a hundred over a period of time, as you're saying, and in a way that's clinically excellent, that's really held to a high clinical standard, that's evidence-based, that's really getting patients better and you can, see outcomes to back that up while being financially sustainable. I mean, that, that sounds like a, like something really that's beyond just you individually as, as, a, as a great sort of pioneer in the field or me trying to do my best. But really when we're looking at just the millions of people who are suffering, you know, in the country, here's a path, right? Because we're, we're not going to magically bring thousands of new psychiatrists tomorrow, but here's sort of here's a path. And, and as you said before, of where we can come home again to who we were as a healthcare system and with the right partner, be able to scale and, and deliver, you know, that care to people. That to me is very exciting and inspiring, you know, not on just on an individual level, but we all know family members who have, I've, I was recently honestly to tell you as well on the podcast, just trying to work with a family member to try to get them into care. And even as a psychiatrist who knows all of the back doors of everything, okay, cool. We'll get back to you in three months. You know, and it's yeah. seeing that on a personal level, I think is is key. So I would love to get from you, you know, on, on this note of as as you're envisioning this, maybe if you can dream with me for for a moment. If um if you could dream or if you can sort of in, in your mind's eye how how this would work in a place like Rochester, what would you love to see? Is it seeing it in every primary care? Is it seeing it across specialty clinics? You know, what would you sort of uh, dream for the for the collaborative care uh, model working fully and, and, you know, at its best where you are? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Mina. In, in my, I like to think on a system level. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to um, maybe, if you'll allow me to reframe the question a little bit, yes. um, and, and also ask, where does the collaborative care model fit within a mm. system of care? Because um, the mental health and substance use need is so great mm. uh, that it would be um, inaccurate, in my opinion, to say that that can be solved by the collaborative care model alone. Um, however, envisioning a system of care that includes a number of the, the differentiated levels of solutions or differentiated levels of care from um, prevention 
screening, education around mental health, addressing issues of stigma, addressing social determinants, transportation, um, uh, housing, mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature become important part of a system that allows the collaborative care model to be successful. Uh, and then the collaborative care model is an upstream intervention as well. Mm -hmm. It is meant to respond to the screening. So yeah. if we tell a primary care practice that a best practice for you would be to screen for depression and anxiety and substance use, an immediate reaction is gonna be, that's very nice and well, but what am I gonna do when I, when you know, when someone screens positive? Mm. And a collaborative care model well implemented at scale mm. can uh, provide that initial intervention. And we know that a significant proportion of patients, that's all they need is that intervention, a number of touches or a number of interventions throughout a period of time, maybe three, maybe four months. And that's all a person needs to get back on track and, and uh, get back to their fully functioning life. Uh, some people may need more, and that's why we also need to have facilitated referral system and access mm -hmm. to specialty clinics. But, you know, implementing a collaborative care model will, will diffuse maybe or will uh, lessen the burden on those mm -hmm. specialty clinics. Because right now, let's face it, everybody is knocking on the same door. Right. If, if I have an adjustment disorder or if I'm grieving the loss mm -hmm. of somebody or I'm having a bad day, I'm knocking on the same door as the person who is struggling with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. So if my concerns can be dealt with in the primary care practice, then maybe the burden on specialty clinics will be less and they will be able to, to be part of that continuum of care um, that we would create in a community like Rochester. That's such an inspiring way to put it. At the end of the day, this is, we're not gonna you know, magically solve the problem with, with one door here, but maybe if we're not all knocking on the same door and we're creating some others, this can decompress one place where we can you know, really focus in specialty clinics on those who really need to be seen within specialty clinics. And we could do better care for folks who are uh, able to be managed in primary care. I, I just love this framing that within a system, you know, this is this is inspiring for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for your time, Dr. Nasra. This has been uh, eye-opening as always to hear both about the inspiring story in Rochester and for you personally. I, you've, I, I wanna thank you for devoting your career uh, to this work, is it something that is, you know, the future and also back to the future, as, uh, as we've sort of said. So I'm, uh, I'm grateful to you personally, and, and I, I can't wait to, to have you back to hear more about, you know, you personally and the Rochester story. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode of uh, Mind Matters, a behavioral health podcast. For more information, visit us at consulturehealth.com. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, share with a colleague, with your help, we can spread the word about collaborative care. Until then, be well. <laughs>